0: Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physiotherapist and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, I have Alex Nterra, a strength and conditioning coach, who is a senior athletic performance specialist at the GWS Giants Football Club in Sydney. Alex, in this episode, is going to provide an absolute wealth of knowledge and very practical information on isometrics and eccentric training for you to enjoy. Very topically to this episode, I have just launched an application brand called Smartletics, developing both simple training apps through to custom interfaces to provide simple digital athletic solutions. I say topically because our first app is an intuitive metronome for use in the gym. So if you're feeling inspired hearing Alex discuss tempos, holds and parameters within isometrics or eccentrics, then please check out our app on the App Store under Smartletics Tempo. Anyway, shameless plug over, and without further ado, here is the informative conversation with Alex Natera. Alex Natera from the other side of the world, welcome to the show, mate. It's good to have you on. Uh, Thanks for having me, Andrew. Appreciate it. Just to begin with, uh, in case there's any listeners that haven't come across you yet, can you just kind of outline your, your background and a little bit about your current role?
1: Yeah, sure. My background, um, I've been in the game now, the, the strength and conditioning game, performance game for I think this is my twenty-first year. Started off briefly in sort of private facility work, working with, you know, the the average weekend warrior to the elite athlete, and then quickly moved into team sports, uh, professional sports, soccer and and rugby. Uh, and then moved into institute sports and Olympic sports for geez, the best part of eight to ten years really. Um, and then Leading me back into pro sport now with a uh, with an AFL team down here in Australia called the the GWS Giants, uh, based in Sydney. Um, so I guess there's been a, a fairly even mix, maybe about ten years worth of institute type sport, Olympic sport, and ten years worth of professional team sport experience um, that I've had somewhere through that sort of twenty twenty one years of. Um, also done some lecturing um, at university over in England, and also quite a lot of a, a lot of technical coaching in rugby as well. So um, a bit of a bit of a checkered sort of background around high performance sport and also technical coaching and lecturing and education. And uh, leads me to my position today. Like I said, is with my just finished my third preseason now with the GWS Giants, and uh, my role is head of strength, power, and speed. Um, so primarily focused around those areas and then just you know assisting the rest of the program in terms of the physical development of our athletes and preparing them for what is a pretty brutal sport um, and a a relatively new sport for me to get used to.
0: And I saw that you know you're you're very well known for your work around um, isometric training amongst other topics but a lot of people have seen a lot of your isometric work and I saw that even in this last week you've had some content go out on how you can train around that within this COVID shutdown and lack of gym equipment? How how did that come into uh, fruition?
1: Oh, weirdly enough, like um I was just contacted by um by by Val and just asked, you know, what my thoughts were around the current climate and what I was seeing so much on the social media was a lot of low load, um, you know, muscular, I guess, work and not a lot of high neural output work. And it just dawned on me that like we were getting it wrong. Like there was that, that if doing that and then coming back into, you know, a condensed season or a condensed preparation period was just going to cause absolute disaster with our athletes. So I just wanted to get the information out that, that there are plenty of opportunities with limited equipment to get high neuromuscular outputs and to put high m- mechanical tension through the muscle, uh, muscles. And so that was just a driver really for me to go and get that sort of information out there and just. Generally, when I try and talk um, or present, I try and back it up with something. If it's not research, and I'm not the most read, well, uh, well-read person in the world, but if it's not research, then it's experience and, and data that I've collected and things that have aff- informed my program over the years. So yeah, I just yeah, just wanted to get that out and show that there were isometric options and really cheap ways of going down to the hardware store and buying you know $5 worth of uh, t- uh, tie downs and being able to push, you know, maximally against these sort of um, these sort of resistances. I mean, it's one of the
0: only options at the moment. Everywhere's selling out of rigs and bars and kettlebells, from what I can see. So uh, no, it's good. It's a good idea to uh, to get that out there and give people some options. Um, I mean, I was interested to get you on because I started playing around with isometrics and eccentric work a lot with, with quite a lot of focus uh, when I worked with skiers and snowboarders going back a few years, and um, I use them a little bit in rugby around try to get people to load at certain times in the week without creating too much soreness um, and sort of tinkering with that around recovery as well when you can get people to load where did your interest in isometrics spark from and, and how's it kind of developed over time
1: without or trying to keep over a very long convoluted um answer there's definitely been a spark about 10 years ago where out of necessity problem solving in 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 the field i started implementing it and then it's grown significantly from there but realistically when i look way back into it you know as a young young boy first of all starting out in sport and i think my sport to start with was martial arts I remember doing a really really traditional style of martial arts and it was, it was pretty funky you had to run out into the forest and there was bamboo dojo there out in the elements whether it was you know cold or wet or whatever and anyway i was a real youngster there training with men and I remember a lot of our poses and a lot of our strength work was isometric work, whether I was pushing against your own hands or pushing against objects. And so I was already being exposed to it by then. And, and from, in my mind, I was already going I – was, I was a lot stronger than other kids my age. And, okay, it was probably because I was training four or five times a week doing martial arts and they were just kicking a ball around the backyard. But, but in my mind, I was thinking it was the strength training I was doing um, at martial arts. So that was the first kind of exposure. That's five to eight, nine years of age, you know. And then going into high school, learning how to train, really fortunate to have a really good S&C coach way back then, you know, 30-odd years ago. Um, but, he, you know, he showed me all the lifts and we had great training programs to work around. But I was always, before any education had really set in in terms of how muscle actions or the different muscle actions, I was already, you know, experimenting. Like I knew I could push something up. But, um, I knew that wasn't it that wasn't it. I could still hold something there you know without you know, after I'd already failed, and then I knew I could also lower something as well. so all of those sort of training me- methodologies I was using back then before I'd even read anything and and it was more just because of the the obsession to just work hard, like I think we've all gone through some stage in it where we're just like, just work okay, I'm failed there on that now i'm going to fail on something else and fail again and just give myself like the most potent stimulus and obviously you know there's other more powerful forces at, at play, like, you know, biologically maturing and whatnot. But, you know, I was professing that all of this work was getting me really strong and, and, and benefiting, my, benefiting my sport. And ironically, although I was training for rugby, I was also becoming a really, really strong middle distance runner, an 800 meter runner. And um, I won't go into times or anything, but I, I was doing really, really well. And um, so ironically, that was also benefiting that while I was still getting bigger and stronger. So that's sort of something that dripped into my mind as well. And I guess all this information is just a good background to, to understand why I had the plunge in the dark in the, in the in the first place. And then moving on from there, I played rugby. I played rugby professionally and semi-professionally. And I was a hooker. I was a late transfer into hooker from a back rower. And um, so I only transferred around 17, 18 years of age, directives from here in Australia to go that route. So I did that route and went over to England playing that route, doing that route. And I was, I was always a strong guy relatively and also absolute, but I was a small guy. I was, I was always struggling a hundred kilos max. And obviously, you know, the, the size of the props and stuff that I'd become up against it's that's without saying. Um, but I was always able to hold my own there, but I always struggled in the scrum and, um, I just started doing more isometric work because that's what a scrum feels like. When you're in the, when you're in the thick of things, mm. it's just you're just holding on to dear life, pushing as hard as you can without any movement. So I did a lot more isometric training for myself. And either coincidentally or maybe there was a strong correlation, I don't know, but I got better at scrummaging through utilizing that strength rather than squatting, say, 250, 260 kilos, but actually just pushing hard against immovable objects and loads, um, especially on that left leg that you – play you plant with and you strike with your right leg for those who don't know you're kicking the ball back down to the back of a scrum with one leg while the other leg's just holding on to dear life um so that helped me and benefited me and then then it pretty pretty quickly led on to you know me retiring from rugby and then working in the industry over the years and then the problem came and the problem came in the fact that i had a a silver medalist in a recent olympic games um, she so she would already silver medal. So she was a modern pentathlete. So if those who don't know, in modern pentathlon, one of the events is the combined event where you run a kilometer and then you shoot, you run another kilometer, you shoot, and you run another kilometer. Um and with that, there's a whole heap of you know, running efficiency that's really important there. Cause you have to control your heart rate, control your exertion level so you can shoot accurately. Anyway, the athlete had already won a silver medal, right? And I'm here wanting her to, to do some training, some neuromuscular training. And she was like, I, I need to lift to win Olympic medals. Why why would I go and lift now? Meanwhile, the coach is saying to me, Alex, you need to. In his really thick Hungarian accent, Alex, she needs more more of this, more of more of this pop, more of this ping on the ground. You know, she needs to be more reactive. I'm like, okay, right. Well, we're we're already doing running drills. We're already doing some forms of plyometrics. I need to get back and re- revisit the basics. But you know, again, there was that you know issue that this athlete didn't feel, and it was very hard to sell lifting to her. She's already been highly successful on the world stage. So I promised her, um, had a copy with her, and I promised her, look, I promise you, you give me two sessions a week of only 20 minutes, okay, in the gym, but I promise you won't lift the weight. And um, she agreed to it, and and that's how it started. So I put her into a a mid-thigh pull, isometric pull, locked in so you can't move it, strapped her in on the force plate, live feedback, feedback with the laptop, and just got her to pull. Um I if I can remember rightly, I think I think I used a three by three by four second um uh, set format, which took about 20 minutes. And um and I fluctuated the the intensity that she work at 80, 90, 100 percent And from off the back of that came um some some really positive changes in some of her, her running kinematics. So contact time, stride length, stride frequency, you know, more efficient at race pace. And um, and ultimately, I guess the the first deciding factor was the fact that she got you know twenty five to thirty percent stronger in peak force, which was in a time frame of I think fourteen to sixteen weeks. I think it was, which was obviously a lot more than I'd be able to get in traditional isotonic uh, training. Um, And feeding into that, though, again, I told you it'd be a convoluted, long answer. Feeding to that was exposure in the rehab setting around that time before I actually made the plunge. Rehab working close with physiotherapists, and and there was. You know, they would obviously start with the isometrics, lower load, you know, wouldn't aggravate any injuries as such in the early stage rehab process. And then they'd get handed over to me and I'd carry on with that process. So I'd keep their isotonic work going on. But more and more as I started rehabilitate athletes, I'd actually just extend their isometrics further and further because I knew they had already been four to six weeks, maybe, maybe a little bit less, maybe a little bit more sometimes on that exercise. And they'd already gradually loaded up. And in my mind, I was like, well, they're already getting there at really high forces. I'm gonna to have to start off basic again isotonic work. So why can't I just keep this going up while the isotonic's catching up? Sort of thing. And so that was my my process and my philosophy. Then it still is. And so I just keep ramping that isometric work up while the isotonic lags behind and catches. And then over time, I started realizing that actually by the time we got to isotonic work, after we were hitting really high intensities isometrically. Um, We actually are at a better stage isotonic wise. So we were actually going to hit markers earlier than we normally would have um, through a rehab process where we dropped completely isometrics and then started isotonic slowly to gradually build them up. I was almost cutting down the time to return to their normal strength training, uh, strength loads by, oh, oh, it depends, but certainly four to five, six weeks at some stages, depending on the the, um, severity of the uh, injury. Um, and then within that time as well, isometric testing came quite heavily into the performance world, in particular isometric mid thigh pull. And I remember another trigger moment where we were um, we were testing adolescent athletes or young developing athletes, sort of around that age of sort of fourteen to sixteen to eighteen years age. And it was my gut that this measure of isometric force wouldn't be a reliable measure in isometric mid thigh pull. Um, so we did – certain. I was doing certain reliability trials, but I could never actually get good reliability. Now, I know there's plenty of research out there now. I think Greg Halfs just released something recently that shows that it's actually a reliable measure even in really, really young cohorts. But at the time, I wasn't getting good reliability. They'd be improving by 50 newtons almost every time, and that was outside of smallest worthwhile changes – so I was like, "Wow, what's happening here?" And they would get, I was actually implementing it almost as a training protocol, and they were just getting stronger. So the young athletes were getting a training effect from it. So armed with all of that in my mind, um, and the fact that I just it just didn't fit right that running was a eccentric muscle action. It just didn't seem. I knew that we would we would we were compressing as we hit the ground. I knew the spring mass model dictated that we we would um we would compress, but it didn't didn't seem efficient or effective for us to be eccentric in that manner so to take the plunge wasn't actually that hard but to be honest i was i was forced into it anyway because i had no other option to neuromuscularly load this this particular athlete
0: well it makes sense as well doesn't it because i guess from a leave well it's a bit of an anecdotal example but like from an evolutionary standpoint humans have got some good long tendons so do cats and both of us have good running efficiency compared to other animals with lesser tendons so it makes sense that that muscle tendon interaction isn't this purely kind of eccentric big joint movement motion that's metabolically costly. Um I think it makes a lot of sense that we we do rely on a lot of isometric kind of mechanism in in force production.
1: Absolutely and I think the evidence is getting stronger and stronger out there now, you know, there was there's some good modeling out there but I think you know as as we go through particularly um guys like Adrian Lai or LAI is is the, is the spelling of his name down in Melbourne. Um, they do some great work on it, and you know it, it seems pretty strong evidence now that yes, the muscle tendon unit lengthens, but most of that lengthening is coming from the tendon, where the fascicles essentially stay pretty pretty um, uh, straight and similar similar length the whole time. So therefore, performing isometrically.
0: And you know, isometrics in you know whether that's in a rehab context or or kind of pushing the performance end of the spectrum have lots of benefits and you've, you've touched upon some of them but you know we we could be dealing with sort of analgesia from a pain standpoint with like physio we could be we could be trying to chase tendon adaptation neurological changes and and we we mentioned earlier kind of they don't tend to create the same level of soreness as other types of training can is there any benefits beyond those ones that i've just mentioned that you would use to credit them or or to rule them into your programming
1: yes yeah, certainly um i think you've hit the nail on the head with those key ones but um you know, things that spring to mind is just, you know, the, our training programs or our, our athletes' programs these days are so full. Um, time is of essence, you know, and you this time cost with isometric training is one of the key factors from a, a delivery programming side of things. So like I said to you, this, this particular athlete, it was a 20-minute session. That, that's, that's all she had. And she did no other lifting, no other lifting. That's all she did. Um, so it can, yeah, from a time perspective, uh, really good way to to load really high neuromuscular loading, so high motor unit recruitment. Um, we don't get the same sort of you know, I guess time cost of having to unrack or rack things. Uh, we don't have the you know follow the same route of of slowly. Well, we follow the same route of slowly recruiting motor units up the up the size sort of um, principle, but we get there a lot quicker because this work is maximal, you know, or near max sort of work. Um, a couple of things that i've noticed too with it is you know you can iron out you can almost see asymmetries more regularly with your with your isometric um exercises particularly if you're using a force plate and you're using some of the the exercise i use specific around the ankle the knee and the hip you can see these asymmetries that you don't see generally in more isotonic movements or dynamic movements um you i guess if it's if it's a it's a potential benefit if you're in a in a in a weight, you know, weight determined sport or whether you've got enough muscle mass or you don't want to have more muscle mass, um, it's less effective for increasing muscle mass. There is some increasing and there's different ways of uh utilizing isometrics to increase muscle mass, but as a benefit, certainly for my sport I'm working in, where the running loads are so high, you know, not often um having more muscle mass is, is that beneficial for the athletes. Um what what another benefit is you you can precisely work the specific muscle joint length tension relationship rather than working isotonically where you're, you're always at your failure is at the weakest point of the lift, which isn't necessarily specific to the, to the actual movement or the sporting um, action you're trying to develop. Whereas this time you can work specifically at the joint range or the muscle length that's important for the sport. And that actually is the biggest thing for me. So in terms of my implementation of isometrics, it's about the specificity. So we've just talked about running being a potentially an isometric muscle action at at ground contact and at mid stance, well, that is the key for me. So to try and have some good dynamic correspondence and transfer to the actual sporting movement, it's actually trying to work really specifically. And with isometric training, we can work, like I said, specifically with the muscle action, specifically with the muscle length, specifically with the forces that are produced and the time frame that forces are produced as well so it ticks a lot of boxes in terms of um, providing a, an exercise or a stimulus that can transfer to the actual sporting movement
0: obviously like some people you've got some i'm guessing you've got some tech at your disposal where you can you can uh, monitor some of the output whilst they're they're pulling into a midify pool or whatever the isometric is but for maybe a coach or clinician with um, no tech around them but they've got some gym equipment do you kind of think, based on what you just said, there's some value where you watch somebody move and maybe you're, I don't know, you're watching somebody squat because that's easily relatable for people and you, you're putting weight on the bar and you're, you're pushing an athlete and you see that th- they're going to get some mechanical compensation somewhere at some point in load or velocity. Do you kind of use the isometrics as a way to... Um, you know buffer that area that you where they need it so you see that like during a certain range or position they're weak or slow or slower than they are in other areas so you go that's the segment of the movement that i need to um, supplement with the isos uh
1: so i'll use variable variable resistance so i'll use bands and chains to work that portion that i'm that i'm that i'm more after as as a preference um for sure uh i mean we're getting into the almost a powerlifting mind frame then to be honest, because, um, you know, the boys, so like boys love their bench presses, um, obviously, and (laughs) we all do. And so for sure, if there's a weak point there, I'll go back to my powerlifting, put my powerlifting hat on and help the boys out and work in those specific positions. But, um, it's not, it's not, to be honest, it's not a typical go-to for me because I'm not so interested in the squat or so interested in the deadlift or so interested in the bench press. That's not my driver. My driver is the movement on the field. Um, So, but again, I'll be honest with you, guys do like squatting big and, and sometimes the bosses and the directives from the head coach or the performance manager are what are their numbers. So then there will be that mind frame to go down that route. But ultimately, I, I want to be judged on how the person's moving on the pitch and um, how resilient they are and how fast they are, or how long they can run or how fast and long they can run. That's that's my judgment. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not too hung up on the bench press and the squat and, you know, making that better as a lift. Um, uh, And I'm sure every – many, many strength coaches in the world at the moment are ripping their hair out going, are you serious? That's our bread and butter. It is our bread and butter. It's a great – but it is is just what it is, you know. So I'm less concerned about that and more concerned about, say, the reactive strength and measuring that looking at them and watching them do their plyometrics, watching them change direction effectively, watching them run and their running mechanics, um, looking at their isometric outputs in very, very specific positions to running. So, uh, yeah.
0: (laughs) It makes complete sense. I think that was the gym rat. I think the gym rat in me snuck out into that question there. So, (laughs) Um, You know, obviously there's there's a lot of uh, reasons to rule isometrics into a program, but in your kind of assessment piece or, What essentially triggers you to implement isometrics, I guess? Because you can rule them in for a lot of reasons, but is there key times where you think this is a great time to put it in?
1: Yeah, I'm going to give you a bit of a philosophical answer there. Because ultimately, isometrics, I mean, you know, for well, we we use them in rehab, right? And you you can liken rehab to a young developing athlete as well. So like isometrics are appropriate all the time depending on how you use your isometrics. And there's many ways of implementing isometric training. So they're totally appropriate for a youth developing athlete and they're highly appropriate with high loads for a, for a well-developed athlete. But my philosophical standpoint is this, whenever you implement a novel exercise or a novel stimulus into the development of an athlete, it's going to be most potent when you implement it. That's its most potent. So from a philosophical standpoint, there's not a lot of benefit mixing so many different training methodologies and modalities with an athlete that's still developing off basic and traditional training. So I don't have a set number, um, although if you weren't squatting one and a half times your body weight, I'm not, I'm not going to base my isometric program on you just yet because there's still a lot of development out of traditional lifting um, and I remember a time I worked with a Brazilian sprint coach, excellent sprint coach. Uh, he had he had first Brazilian to run under 10 seconds he had coached. And we were working with an 800, an elite 800-meter runner. He's on the world stage at the moment, but he was a developing athlete at this stage, 16, 17-year-old. And I was wanting to to implement max strength training with him. We've done all this developmental stuff. We're ready to go. Let's lift him heavy. And I remember this coach saying this to me, and it didn't make sense to me. He was like, no, 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 save it, save it, save it for later. We mean save it for later. Let's get him qualified for the Olympics. Let him win, win World Juniors. Go, go, go! Throw everything at him, and it, it never made sense to me that this guy said save it for later. And then, as I've matured and developed and understood, he's he's not he's not against max strength training. Even though he's an endurance runner, he loves it. But he's like that. He couldn't articulate it to, to me, but he's basically saying that that stimulus, if you hold back on that, maximise adaptation with everything he's doing now. Then put that in. That's going to drive adaptation even further. So to answer your question, isometrics completely appropriate for a youngster, but don't use that as the big driver in your program. Just use it as a training tool. Um, use it as some morphological change at the tendon level, maybe some architectural change. There still needs to be more evidence out there at the muscle level, but don't use it as your big go-to. Wait till you, you've adapted that the athlete has adapted in every form of training that you've given them from a basic level before you then start implementing this as a, as a big priority in the program. And then again, it, it goes it, it fits side by side with the fact that if they're not squatting or deadlifting or whatever your choice of leg exercise is at an appropriate strength level, then there's no point pushing anything more into it. And then the other caveat is the fact that if you have and you put a good strength program um, progressive strength program together over many, many years, and this athlete's still only squatting or deadlifting or whatever, the equivalent of a squat at one point, I don't know, seven times body weight, maybe you've maximized the ceiling of their strength. And then potentially then isometrics can be more of a, um, a key in the program. And the squat then takes a little bit more of a backward step, if you like.
0: Well, if we're not guilty of doing it once or twice ourselves, we've probably all seen it where there's, a, there's an okay program in place and then we learn something new or revisit a topic and then we throw the baby out of the bathwater and overnight the program changes so we can put this new novel stimulus in or whatever we've just witnessed i think i think a lot of coaches have probably seen that uh, quite widely
1: absolutely i think we have to be really wary of it i mean I've just gone into, into into some detail there and giving you an example of of why and and if you're assessing regularly and monitoring regularly you know the impact your program is having. Some sports are really messy, like team sports. There's a lot going on and you don't know. But if you periodically look at what's happening, is power changing, is running changing, is whatever your metrics are, if they are changing, the program is still successful. It's creating change and adaptation that's appropriate, plus the athlete's maturing, et cetera, et cetera. So don't change. When everything flattens, when things start flattening completely, then you're mad to keep doing the same thing if you want to continually improve this athlete. So even really, um, say, athletes towards the twilight of their career, 28 years of age, whether it's team sport or or, um, or, or athletics, for example, implementing it then with them, all of a sudden, boom, something changes like there's a huge new adaptation there's a stimulus that that has provided that so it might might not be the fact that we're working specifically the same you know muscle action etc etc but the fact that it's a novel stimulus and the body reacts to it you know the neuromuscular system adapts and reacts accordingly
0: i mean you've you've given some examples already in in some of the answers about some context where you've used isometrics is there any other examples that kind of will paint a good picture of ways that you implement them into programs?
1: Yeah. Okay, again really there's there's a number of different ways to implement these isometrics. There's a huge range of them. so if I briefly explain my method. I use a push and a hold method, okay as pure isometrics, if you like. a push being um an isometric exercise where you're trying to overcome an immovable object, okay that object can't move, and you're exerting forces against it. So you're essentially trying to be concentric with your movement, but you're not able to. And it's, and weirdly enough, that you know the science says that that follows a neuromuscular, a neuro n- nervous system um, uh, strategy similar to concentric muscle actions. And then there's another exercise called a hold, where you are essentially holding a weight that's trying to push you down, and you're resisting that force. So what you're doing there is you're trying not to be eccentric. Funny enough, neuromuscular strategies are eccentric in nature when you're doing that sort of isometric action or isometric exercise. And then I go into the quasi-isometrics where there is, you know, it's not strictly isometric. It looks isometric. The attempt is to be isometric, but ultimately the intensity of the exercise and the load will determine how successful you are at staying isometric, at least to the eyes. And they are actions that are even more specific. So in the running gait, it's it's coming from a position Where you're um, in the air, and you have to create pre-tension in the free limb, and then strike the ground and automatically be able to hold your body into the in 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 the set position before you drop down. And that would be a switch where you're switching limbs, for example, in a catch where you actually propel your body into the air and you land with it, almost like an altitude landing, if you like. So there's no actual ground contact with any limb. You you elevate yourself and then land with the one limb. So they're the quasi isometrics, the switches and the catches, and then the pure isometrics, which is the pushes and the holders holds with, with very different muscular uh, neuromuscular actions, if you like.
0: Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. I think your, your language around that's really easy for people to, uh, to understand as well. Well, that's a first. If you've, <laughs> <laughs> if you've got an athlete who, you know, you identify as being a good candidate to benefit some isometrics for whatever reason, uh specific to them how do you what are some ways that you phase them in or how do you phase them out what you know one of the things that jumped to my mind when i was thinking of this question was for triphasic training kind of has a bit of a relationship with this but is there a transitional process that you consider to get them in and out of the
1: program yeah uh if they're a running based athlete if their sport demands running there's no reason for an out there's a Always a reason for an in, for the, the, the issues that are, we've already established. Putting it in, classic start with longer time under tensions and body weight loads as a basic entry into the, into the program. I normally start with holds. My long duration holds are 10 seconds, unlike the rehab kind of setting. But for this particular tr- type of isometric training, I normally keep it quite low at 10 seconds. Um, and I prefer to add load to that 10-second hold before I start dropping time And once we've developed a certain level of training capacity, understanding of how an isometric feels and what it it looks like um, to the athlete, then start doing some pushing, again, trying to overcome an um, unmovable weight uh, or immovable weight, should I say, and measure that on a force plate if you've got access to a force plate. So then you can start getting some real tangible numbers um, because that's what informs your loading off the back of it. So if someone is able to push out 4,000 newtons, into a force plate you then know that's their maximal capacity you minus their body weight to find out what the actual load would be and then you start working your percentages out based on it and from my pushes to the holds to the to the the switches to the catches we're essentially working from 80 to 100 percent with the pushes from about 60 to 75 80 percent with the holds the switches are around about 40 to 60 percent and then the catches below that from from body weight upwards because um, the exercise alone provide, you know, the dynamic of the exercise alone provide the intensity so the load naturally drops down. Um, how to swing a program together? Well, there are numerous ways. Follow a linear type pattern where you you would first start with your pushes, quantify your loads, move to your holds, move to your switches. Catches uh, something I like talking about a lot because people – Feel like oh, there's a progression there. I need to get to the end, and I can tell you, catches are hugely, hugely intense exercises. And out of say, I don't know, 130 people I've put through isometric training, probably only 10 I've taken all the way to catches. So it's not something to rush into. But switches definitely, once you've hit certain KPIs along the way, um, from a loading perspective. But that would be a straight linear progression that you you might follow. Uh, you might follow a a linear progression in terms of how you implement it within a session. A lot of us are, uh, are, are captive to our traditional exercises. Um, I am. Every day I fight the battle of, no, he needs to squat. He needs to squat. Yeah, he's got a 2.5 times body weight squat. Does he really need to squat? Oh, yeah, I still need to squat somehow. So we don't have to let that go, you know, if we're, um, if we're, One way of doing it is having isometrics and this specific isometrics I'm talking about as auxiliary lifts to start with. So in the program, they might just be auxiliary lifts at the end of the program, you know, some lighter holds, longer time under tensions, et cetera. You might incrementally build them over the time. And then from an auxiliary lift, the isometrics might pop up to a key lift. So they become a really key lift, but you'd still do your, your squat and your cleans beforehand, but you just reduce the volume significantly, slightly reduce the intensities, almost have that as a primer one of the best ways to warm up for an isometric exercise, particularly if you're going to put four four or five times body weight load through your spine, is to do some high intensity squatting. So load up. So you don't have to take it out of your program. Keep them in. That's a great warm up to then get into your key isometric lifts. So again, now you're using that as a key lift. And then later on in the preparation period of time, you can use that as a complex. Um, So you do your isometric work. Say, for instance, your your isometric knee pushes one leg almost like a, a mini squat position pushing into the immovable bar and get off that do a um a box strike for example where you have a small box 15 or 30 centimeters high and you drive your foot into the box to to propel yourself up into the air or um a calf isometric for example an isometric uh calf you'd be pushing harder doing your 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 key lift get off and do a Uh, a drop hop, for example, off a box. So that would be a way of linearly periodizing them, becoming an auxiliary lift to a key lift and then a complex lift or a transfer type block. And then a final way probably for, well, not a final, there's lots lots of ways, but another one that springs to mind is a conjugate type approach. So now for more of an advanced athlete where you might be working a a max effort on one day, a dynamic effort on the other day, and then a repeated effort on, on the end of the week, for example, more of a sort of a metabolic load, if you like. And so you might go from max effort, you know, doing your big isometric pushes and you might use... The methodology of what I, what I classify as grinding or ramping, so you slowly ramp up into a maximal effort, which has significant correlations or adaptations with maximal force development. But then on the dynamic day, you might do what I call an explode effort, so really rate of force development focus, um, and you're just one second as hard as you can and as fast as you can. You're never going to get up to the same sort of outputs as a a push, uh, sorry, a grind, but you explode instead. And that might be your dynamic effort day, and then you're end of the week day in an advanced athlete might be, you know, some multiple efforts on switching, for example. And, um, and so there, there are heaps of ways to do it. The other way to think about it maybe is, well, I could go on forever on this, mate. Sorry, but, Not you know, it. you can microdose your isometric work. So, you know, you finish game, for example, you've had 48 hours recovery. You want to do something, you almost have a therapeutic dose of isometrics, which which boys love like it feels good, we all know how it feels you know you're not hitting high intensities there, and you're hitting all groups ankle, knee, and hip um getting a nice therapeutic dose early in the week and then on your key after your key main training day session that's when you hit your high intensity doses and then you know before every every training session you're getting your um almost tendon loading micro dosing before before your running sessions as well, so you almost you're almost getting three or four doses of isometric through the week, um, just just in that sort of way of structuring it.
0: I mean, we had um we had Tim Gabbett on sort of earlier on into the podcast, and he actually mentioned that one of the best um, load management systems, I guess, that he's witnessed was where strength and conditioning, in in a way similar to what you've just described with microdosing, was very heavily built into the warm up. Um, in a sport where the, the teams were playing a high frequency of competition. So the warm up provided a practical and realistic way to actually micro dose load and and training adaptations into
1: uh, a hectic schedule. Absolutely. I'll give you an example of about four weeks ago. I mean, our season, like everyone else's season's on pause at the moment. But, um, I was wanting i was I, I had to I had to take out certain things in the program from pre season to in season obviously, you have less time less less things to be able to do, and I need to get my low hanging fruits and make sure they 're in there. Some of my work I was doing was some very much sort of change of direction type work with bands and bungees, um, some deceleration work with a, with a, with the bungees pulling you forward either off a box or whatever and and getting the guys to either go in and out and explode out of these movements and I I couldn't keep it in anymore because there was other things I needed to focus on. And we simply just shifted that work to our prep-to-train work before we get on the pitch. Same volumes, same intensities, great way to prepare to train if you're going to be starting to decelerate and change direction. So, yeah, it's exactly that, mate, utilizing other areas of the program to be able to put whatever you need into it. And then, you know, in the gym, my philosophy is very much around, you know, really – you know, focusing on the nervous system and the far end of the um, nervous system. You know, we do all the aerobic work, the conditioning type work. I now want you to train like sprinters in the gym. And so it's that sort of focus. So um, to make sure that that stays like that and it's sacrosanct, um, then I do my, you know, more resilient type work, my pre-ab type work at other avenues around the training environment to keep that sacrosanct and make sure the intent and the focus is as I want it in that sort of gym environment.
0: Kind of to to segue into eccentrics as a topic, how much do you how much do you do you are you able to utilize them as a training tool? Um, you know, loading guys heavy on on kind of classic eccentric heavy work?
1: Yeah, it's very dependent on the sport you're working with. If it's a high running load sport. You have to be conservative with your approaches to eccentric work if it's a lower lower demand sport obviously you can you can put a lot more in um, if it's a olympic type sport where you know there's a huge general preparation phase and then um you know irregular competition formats you can also use it then as well but but for sure whenever i've implemented isometrics and been really successful with my isometrics it's been off a off a off a bed off a of a platform of eccentric training and that eccentric training has pretty much give you a quick synopsis on how it works it pretty much starts from a accumulation phase of of higher um or oh, sorry of longer time under tension work so from sort of 6 to 8 uh, 6 to 10 eight to 10 seconds lowering, if you like. Um, A classic would be like a five by five, for example, five sets of five reps um, with six to 10-second lowers. And total, that's something like between two to 250 seconds in total work of volume. And that intensity would be submaximal. So it's submaximal in terms of your concentric 1RM, and it's somewhere between sort of 75 to 90%. And after that sort of accumulation phase of eccentrics, I then move – to intensification work, so we now go to like four by four, uh, for example. So four by four reps, and the time and attention drops to around four to six seconds. It's an intensification. We now start jumping up above the hundred percent concentric one RM zone. So we start, you know, living in the ninety to up to one hundred and ten percent type zones. Volume, total volume. You can tell if you do the maths, there it drops by fifty percent considerably. So we're down around sort of 65, 70 seconds up to about 90, 95 seconds of, of, of total time and attention eccentrically. And then we have a realisation phase. Again, everything drops down, intensity moves up to 110, 130%. Some people already bottomed out then, by the way, but uh, it's very individual that the strength that they can have versus their concentric um, abilities. Um, but then we're at, you know, two to four seconds of lowering um, and, you, you know, you, you're working very, very hard now. Uh, around four to three reps at that sort of level, and again, every stage, it kind of the volume drops by fifty percent in terms of total volume, time, and attention. So now we're around twenty-five to fifty odd seconds, and then we have an expression phase where um, I often call this phase a an unsuccessful breaking phase, where essentially they're just they're just holding on to dear trying to stop the, the 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 machine or whatever load they've got from just lowering on them completely. Um, and it, that's that's a very very low dose about. 10 to 20 seconds max in total volume. And that would follow something like a three-by-three three at, depending on the athlete, you know, up above 130 somewhere, 120, 130% above in terms of their concentric 1RM strength. And that's how that would be implemented. Now, it depends how you, you know, it depends. I, I'd always follow that strategy. But if I've given – if I've got nine weeks, I'll, I'll put it into nine weeks. If I've got 12 weeks, I'll put it into 12 weeks. You know, in the track and field environment, it was very easy. I, I worked in sprints for a long time, and I'd always – if there was candidates for eccentric training, I'd have, you know, 12 weeks available to me. So it was very easy to do four, 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 four week blocks each time. But you can condense that to two, two, two. It's just as effective. Um, and maybe you don't get all the way. Maybe you don't get all the way to expression stage. Um, my terminology, sorry. But, you know, you might only go to accumulating some volume and then intensifying. That's maybe all you can have. But doing some is better than not doing anything. I just... I don't know what it is, but it, it it offers a whole heap of control when you do your isometric work. Um, we know how potent eccentric work is for the neuromuscular, from a neuromuscular standpoint, and also more, you know, tendon, uh, sorry, um, muscle architecture changes. And we know by doing that work, we're probably getting all of that stuff. We're getting higher neuromuscular outputs as well. So there's, there's a lot of good stuff going on with eccentrics, which just set you up really nicely for the isometrics. And then without undoing and getting rid of all that work from an eccentric standpoint, you know, you've been dovetailing your eccentric work with some of your isometric pushes and your isometric holds. Remember the isometric holds start moving into more of a eccentric um, neural strategy. And then from there, you go into your quasi-isometrics, which, again, is even more eccentric. So it's not like you've just let go of eccentrics completely. You've just morphed them into more of a quasi-isometrics as you've you've moved through your development stage. Which
0: is, in a sense, a form of periodization, isn't it, what you're doing?
1: Absolutely it is. That's absolutely what it is. Um, uh, Every block, you know, um, almost complementing the next block each time. Absolutely.
0: How much interaction do you have with like the the pts the physios at your place and have you kind of helped shape how their rehabs changed because obviously we touched upon it at the very start but isometrics in a physio context are either really long or they're 10 seconds completely low load and then they bridge into like isotonics but have you has your approach really changed physios that you've been around and how they construct their exercise prescription
1: it seems to have. If I, if I look um yeah, if I look at what was happening originally and what's happening now, it's all good stuff. All good stuff. But yeah, there's de- definitely a a stronger lean on higher intensity work. But I, I think that's also helped with some of the literature literature too that's coming out. Um, um knowing that the higher intensity work, tendons love as well, um, and you get you, you almost double-edged sword it. You almost you most get these um, you know, adaptations that you're able to do pain free but you're also um, developing qualities that are going to be important for the sport performance in itself. So my role at the moment, you know, when I first started this role about three years ago, I was heavily involved in the rehab side of things. It was a philosophy of us, our, our, our program that um, – they they weren't removed from the program so to speak to focus on their injury we're focusing on recovering their injury but it all had to dovetail and line up with our overall philosophy from the giants which was you know getting them to be great afl players and therefore the strength program supported that the running program supported that and so on so it was important for me to be there so then you know guide the decisions the medicals would have yeah, you know, Obviously, their major say in the early stages on, on where we were going from a, a rehab setting. And then I would always put it, yeah, but don't forget, this is what we're doing from a strength perspective. You know, this is what the boys need to get ready for when they come back into the program. So then we were always dovetailing it to, to make sure that it wasn't just injury focused, but it was injury and return to gym with everyone else focused. So essentially, we were getting our boys with the clearance from the physios just to go straight into our programs. So there's no point if I was doing an isometric ankle switch and they'd only been doing, you know, isometric holds at body weight for 40 seconds because then they'll come straight into the program. um, And our philosophy was – to make sure they come into the program flying so then they had to dovetail we had to we had to put steps all the way in to make sure they could come into that program um easily enough now to be honest though about a year and a about a year ago we hired a superstar as far as i'm concerned in the in the snc rehab world in a a guy named simon harry's we took him from uh rugby australia and um he assists me on the strength program so he hasn't you know, a real tangible knowledge of where I'm going, what I'm doing with with the athletes, because he's coaching with me every day, and so he, I just allow him. You know, he just cracks on with the rehab side of things himself because he's a, an elite practitioner, and he he can just he he guides the program completely. So with him, yes, yeah, absolutely, it's a it's a great avenue to work on isometric run specific isometrics. That's what I term um, the way I use isometrics, and we involve that in our players' rehabilitation programs. And if you're if you're working with a running-based athlete, and you want them to thrive when they come back to running. Uh, I, I would suggest if you if you believe that the muscle action is isometric and and um and all the other things we've discussed today, then that should be a real rock of the program. If you're going to return them to running and they've had a lower limb injury, and establishing baseline measurements before the injury happens, so at the beginning of the year is absolutely essential um understanding what's good and what's bad if you like for for want of a better word or what want a better descriptor uh in terms of their isometric strength is also essential
0: and you know i've definitely stolen a lot of ideas from perusing your uh, your instagram and your social media to get some <laughs> to get some ideas and stolen a lot Have you are you going to do any more research do you think are you involved in any sort of more formalized projects for creating information
1: uh, good question. Uh, I spoke to a team the other day, actually, an international team, a rugby team, we'll we'll, we'll leave them quiet for now, about um, my PhD more than anything, though. My PhD area is on repeat powerability, um, which is a completely – obviously a completely different topic there. But um, uh, I wish – yeah, I'd love to have done an isometric PhD as well on this sort of stuff. I really want people to go out there and do more research around it because I'm just speaking as a coach, really, and a coach that – collects data a lot and a coach that, you know, tries to um, think out of the box a little bit sometimes or when solutions aren't, you know, so obviously read, readily available with our normal prescription. Uh, but I'd love people to go and do more work on it. I just keep collecting data, keep manipulating, changing things, looking at things slightly different, working out what athlete responds best. I can tell you right now, everyone, and it's a big statement, but everyone responds to this type of training. Uh, isometric training they they all get stronger isometrically which makes sense i think um and then if you're aware of how to manipulate the program effectively and uh, there's some resources out uh, that i've put out and i will put out more around how to do it more effectively and how to prescribe it effectively and then how to look at what what might be more appropriate for particular athletes they will have an effect on this type of training which is which is pretty dramatic so i'm really confident in it but i don't um, you know, if you came down to any one session of mine and you think, right, I'm going to see Alex here doing high volume power training and isometrics with all his athletes all the time, it, it, it won't be the case. You'll like, oh, I thought you did lots of isometrics. Oh, no, I do, but I'll apply it to the people who need it or I think they, you know, that's their KPI. If the coach goes, this guy, if he doesn't increase his running power, he's not playing AFL, we're, we're delisting him. Well, then guess what I'm doing? I'm doing something that I know will affect it and his priority goes in there. What if someone's not great, got great agility? Well, I'll probably focus more on their eccentric strength qualities and and then also you know their movement strategies and their abilities to be able to coordinate limbs more effectively and so on. So it's not a blanket rule. You wouldn't just come down to my program and see one isometric. One specific isometrics as a tool that sits in the box and I use that accordingly. But what I can say is if you went down uh, tomorrow – there would be some form somewhere one of those exercises would appear and it would normally be around the ankle so they will probably doing some sort of isometric ankle holds for sure
0: <laughs> that's, a, that's a very safe disclaimer you've managed to create there <laughs> in, case, in case anyone witnesses it um where's the best place for people to
1: keep up to date with you and follow you um either twitter or instagram i think twitter's Alex underscore Natera and I think Instagram's Alex.netera. I might have mixed them up, but but that's uh that's generally where we go and just direct message if you have any questions or, or whatever. And I and um i I'd one hundred percent get back to everyone. So um yeah, please feel free to to ask anything you want.
0: Well Alex mate, it's been it's been great to chat to you, mate, and thanks for giving up some time for the show and appreciate your uh your valuable insights today.
1: Thanks, Andy. Pleasure. Uh say good day to Ben Ashworth for me. Yeah, we'll do.
0: I'd like to thank Alex for coming on today's show. I had a great time chatting to him both on and off air and I always appreciate the level of detail that he's able to go into during his delivery, whilst he also keeps it really easy to digest and in such a usable language. I encourage you all to follow Alex on Instagram. He's very good at regularly putting up content that provides insight into his work and also his methods. Next episode, I will be speaking to Tracy Axel, the Director of High Performance Analytics at USA Surfing. And she's also the Manager of Sports Performance Research and Analytics at Mamba Sports Academy. Make sure you subscribe to the show to ensure you don't miss that one or any other future episodes. But for now, thanks for listening to the Informed Performance Podcast.